0: Hello, Eco Interviews listeners. As you know, the Eco Interviews is where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin. I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. As I record this on March 17th, we are in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. People are under quarantine, practicing social distancing, school, and many places of work have been canceled. We are living through truly remarkable times. I feel very strongly that this is an opportunity for us to rebuild the world into a place that benefits us, future generations, and the planet. The water in Venice is clearing and fish are returning after a few weeks of reduced activity on the waterways. China's air pollution is subsiding. The illusion that rugged individualism and unfettered capitalism can save us in the U.S. is really being put to the test. As these systems collapse, now is the time for us to lead by example and show everyone a new way of doing things. In this episode, I speak to Pooja Ganguly from Consult Earth. We dive deep into our food systems and how they are failing us and destroying our environment. We talk about solutions and how to localize our food systems. Maybe the coronavirus is the reset we all need. Stay strong out there and support each other. I appreciate everyone's support for this podcast and content. I'd like to direct you to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash eco interviews. This is where you can contribute directly to this podcast to keep it going. I also want to kick off this project being fully transparent. So I have linked to a spreadsheet that shows all of the ongoing costs to produce the eco interviews. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please consider contributing. More contributions will allow me to produce more quality content and tackle subjects that you're interested in. If we get enough support, we may even create Patreon-exclusive content. Please enjoy this interview with Pooja Ganguly, recorded on February 10th, before the coronavirus was a concern in the US or Australia. Welcome. We're welcoming Pooja Ganguly with us today to the eco-interviews. How are you doing today, Pooja?
1: I'm good. Good. Uh, good morning from Australia.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
1: Uh, yep. Pooja is the um,
0: owner of a, of a consulting business called Consult Earth, and she's been working in the food industry as a chef and a former food journalist. So I'm excited to speak to Pooja about her evolution from chef and food journalist to this consultancy business with a sustainability <laughs> twist on it. So Pooja, um, tell us a bit about yourself and your background in the food industry.
1: Oh, it's a a bit of a long story. Um, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to that. I started my journey about, well, more than 10 years ago now. Um, Since I remember, I always wanted to be a chef growing up. uh, And as a 90s kid in India, um, especially as a girl, that was not particularly the career that... uh, you know, you would want to go for. So when I turned 16, my dad, who realized I was really serious about this, um, put a challenge in front of me that I had to go work in a kitchen between my school holidays and um, work full time and see if I really wanted to do that. So basically started working in kitchens when I was about 16, 17, um, and then went on to go to culinary school. Um, spent three years uh, training to be a chef, uh, worked as a chef for a bit. Um, This was all back in India. This was in Mumbai. I went to um, Acha, Mumbai, which is one of the best schools in the country there. And uh, as luck would have it, I was, um, I just, you know, I was in a competition in college and I still always love writing about food. I always loved the research bit of food and, I ended up meeting um, the then food journalist for BBC Good Food, the magazine, um, which was the Indian um, you know, editorial uh, at that time and um, had a conversation uh, and he asked me to write a feature for them. So that was my introduction into the journalistic world. Um, and following that, I ended up working for them, so that was my in into journalism. I worked as a food editor for BBC Good Food. Uh, Spent a while there and learned a lot. It was, as a, you know, in my early 20s, uh, it was the best exposure that I could have to the food world because I was meeting chefs and food journalists from around the world. I was uh, collaborating with them on projects. I got to travel a lot um, and really understand, um, you know, the bigger picture of the food industry. Um, I had also brought a very unique perspective to the team because I came from a chef background, so I understood the um, not-so-pretty bits of uh, kitchen and the industry. And, uh, yeah, it just went on to become something I really love doing. Um, After that, I spent five years working as a freelancer. So I worked in television, in print, I used to do content and food styling. Um, And uh, about two years ago, I decided to change track and uh, do a master's in sustainability. Um, And that was my introduction to the world of sustainability, really. And um, moved to Australia, so moved to Melbourne, did my master's at Monash. And by the end of it is when Earth came about.
0: Fantastic. Was there a catalyst or anything that, uh, that was a driver behind you deciding to make that turn and go back to university to study sustainability?
1: Um, yes, it was actually, uh, it was a process, I would say, um, I come from a family of um, refugees, so my family uh, moved from Bangladesh to India during partition. And um, growing up, food was a big part of our identity uh, because we had, uh, you know, lost our home and lost our land. And uh, so my grandparents held very strongly to the culture and the food. And uh, I came from a very big family, so I lived. with my extended family in the same house so we were my dad there's six brothers two sisters and everyone had about two kids so it was a giant family mm-hmm. and uh the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it was it was a unique experience growing up and sort of the way you really connected or the sense of home was in our food so um for me that was a huge part of my personal identity um i remember going to the market, buying directly from uh, the producers, you know, uh, very young. uh, I was very young when my father would take me to the fish market or the meat market. And I knew where my food came from. I saw the fact that there was respect because you saw an animal give their life for you to consume it. And as a child, there was a huge sense of connection that you form to where your food comes from. Um, And I was very lucky to have that. Uh, But as I started growing up, and this is India, in the early 2000s, um, it started to change. And uh, the idea that um, things that were more sort of, you know, from a different culture, there was a huge American influence due to television and media and you know, music, and uh, we were all watching the same shows, we were all watching the same movies, and it sort of crept in that that was better than our sort of traditional ways of living. And, look, that's part of globalization, but what happened in India in the course of that was that uh, we started to lose out on food heritage. So um, the younger generation would know how to cook maybe, you know, pasta but they wouldn't know how to boil rice or make a dal and uh, it it just struck me very intensely because for me that was just you know it was just something I couldn't relate to because I had such a strong identity or connection to food that I just felt like everyone else did and um, when I went to culinary school it was a very interesting experience because uh, I trained in classical French um, in a school in India, whereas um, Indian traditional cuisine and then there are such a diversity of it because every province and every you know, little town has a different cuisine, um, got half a semester uh, out of a three-year degree, which is specializing in food. Um, so it was a stark realization that we were devaluing what our food heritage was um, and I started a personal project, which was collecting recipes from grandmothers. Mm-hmm. So I was friends with all my friends' grandmothers and their recipes was something that intrigued me. And I, you know, I was living in Mumbai, which has a very diverse, um, you know, community. So I was learning from people from different parts of the country. And you know, the cuisine and the nuances that they brought to it was so interesting and so diverse that um, it just kept feeding my interest in it and eventually became a big part of who I was as a journalist. Um, I focused on traditional Indian um, cooking and practices and communities and what those things meant to those communities. And uh around the same time I actually um I would say I called my, you know, the trigger that changed the course of my path. Uh he is this incredible chef in India. His name is uh Christian Fernandez, and um he he's a genius who had this food lab <laughs> and he would uh you know try out all these different things and, you know, techniques and recipes. And he was doing, trying to have the same conversation and see how he could bring traditional ingredients and techniques back into mainstream, um, you know, hospitality uh, and restaurants. And I would work with him on and off as a journalist. And uh, around that time, he gave me a book called The Third Plate by Dan Barber. and that book changed my life because that was my introduction to sustainability. And all these things that I was trying to talk about or had in my head about, you know, the loss of traditional ingredients, the loss of traditional ways of cooking, the effects that had mass reduction, you know, globalization, all of these things that I was trying to deal with and I thought it was just a personal loss of identity, suddenly escalated in scale and I realized it was a global problem and you know it had a name and it had a um you know it had it it validated that my concerns were real um and that started my journey towards sustainability where um I always I went back to my favorite thing which is research (laughs) Uh and uh read up all I could and um talk to people. Um, I was very lucky, like I said, working as a journalist. I had access to um, food activists. I had access to chefs who were trying to have the same conversation. This is still five years ago, uh, maybe longer, maybe six years ago. So it was still uh beginning of the conversation in industry, but it was there because, you know, all of us who come from that traditional, you know, very strict French we know that there's so much with how the system you know how our kitchen is run and we have been through that so we were talking about and we we're talking about the wastefulness we were talking about you know the mental health we were talking about um you know drug and alcohol abuse we were talking about all of that and we were the first generation of chefs and you know hospitality uh, professionals who were bringing that up and saying this is not right. So um, it just created a big shift for me and it created a need to do more. And that's when I decided that, you know, if I want to help in the course of the industry, I have to know what I'm talking about and really immerse myself in learning what sustainability really is. And I was very lucky to be accepted into... This great master's program at Monash, which is a interdisciplinary program. So a cohort of people from different backgrounds. Um, so I had engineers, lawyers, fashion designers, um, you name it, like people from different professional as well as cultural backgrounds come together and spend two years to learn about what sustainability was. And it changed my life. It changed how I look at the world, it changed my thought process and weirdly, and I won't say weirdly, but most importantly, made me a kinder, more considerate human being.
0: Wow. <laughs> what a, what an amazing story. <laughs> what an amazing journey. And I think um, I would love to hear more about this exploration of growing up with traditional foods. And then we have that sort of, Hmm. as you mentioned the American influence or the sort of Western influence where we have this disconnect between Mm -hmm. where our food comes from because we buy it from the grocery store. Right. And we, we don't grow up next. Most of us don't grow up next to livestock as a kid. I did grow up next to livestock, but I would say the majority of people I know did not. Um, And how that plays into sustainability, uh, how it is yeah. sustainable, or or wherever that takes you. Um,
1: I was actually watching an interview, but uh, or the acceptance speech that Joaquin Phoenix gave at the Oscars yesterday, and something that really struck with me is him mentioning how disconnected we are as humans from our environment. And if you, if I have to pick, you know. The root cause of where we are today, I would say that's it. Um, humans exist within nature, so if you look at if you if you look at what sustainability is, it is uh, it is an amalgamation of people, purpose, and profit, or society, environment, and economics. And there are two ways of looking at it. One is where uh, sustainability is when the three align together. But my the way I like to look at it is that um, it's a concentric circle and, you know, economics lives within society and society lives within the environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that is how I like to define sustainability is that you can't, as soon as you think that humans live or have control over in the environment, or should control the environment, that's when we have problems. Um, something that really struck me was uh, I have a lot of nieces and nephews, and, you know, they're growing up in India, but it's about, I would say, a generation apart, and um, it took one generation for that disconnect to set in, because they're parents have access to supermarkets and prefer to and have busy lives and you know um, they just prefer it as a convenience to go and shop there and there's a much more disconnect there where my um, little niece thought chocolate milk came from brown cows Mm -hmm. Um, and for me as an aunt who just couldn't fathom it that you know like how did that disconnect set in in maybe 15 years and that's when you realize how powerful media is um and I am I have huge guilt because I fed that when I was a journalist I used to work for a British uh, magazine essentially and uh, We had guidelines and, you know, you would westernize Indian recipes to cater to a market. You would push olive oil because we got paid by an olive oil company to, you know, promote olive oil as the healthier option or other oils that were traditional, actually better. Um, So no one talks about that because, you know, it's against what you're trying to feed but the longer impact of that is that you're changing essentially changing what the rest of the world is trying to go towards um indian living was my grandmother is the epitome of sustainability um now that i look back she would use every bit of the produce that came into the house so if you were having potatoes she would make something else with the potato peel. Um, she would shop seasonally. So we every season we ate different. And it was not just the product, produce, but also health benefits because uh, food is medicine. Uh, we didn't grow up on Western medicine. We grew up on natural uh, healing. And you know we ate seasonally because that helped our immunity. Or if we got sick, she had natural remedies. Um, we didn't use single-use plastic. Everything came from the grocer in bulk. So you would take your stuff, your you know your containers. You would fill it up, or you'd get paper bags that they would fill it up and send it home. Wrapped with twine, um, and milk came from the depot. So we'd take our little cans and go to the, you know, the big milk bank and then you'd push a button and it would release milk into your can and you'd come back home and you'd do it like every like two days. And I'm not even that old. Like I'm not even 30, you know, like that's how recent this is. This is my childhood. And how did we go so wrong in such a little time? And, That experience is where that all of this stems from. And when I talk about sustainability, I always say this, it's not inventing the wheel. It is tracing back where we went wrong and trying to go back to that time. Because we were doing it right for a really, really long time. Um, The need for convenience and the lack of time is what pushed us to resorting to things that are not necessarily the only option. So yeah, I think speaking about that loss of identity, it is, um, it is stronger for me because uh, I, I feel like my country is a, a, um, you know, it's a very good example of what has happened in the world, but because it has happened over a very short period of time, it it just gives you, acts as a very good case study um, at how important it is for people to feel connected to nature, land, what it takes to grow a vegetable. Um, You know, the pain that farmers go through uh, to produce uh, a season of vegetable. And if it doesn't happen, then the effect that that has on a community Mm -hmm. that is dependent on that produce. So, Um, large scale agriculture for me is something that feeds that disconnect because, um, you're not, you don't know where your food's coming from. You don't know the person who's producing your food, you're buying off a shelf and, you know, you relate to the brand rather than the person who's making that food. So, yeah, um, look, globally we are at a stage where um, it is very scary the more you read about it and the more you understand it where we are as a food system um, there there's a you know clear monopoly in the food industry um in terms of where our food is coming from uh, if you're buying from a supermarket uh, you might be buying different brands but the actual company that you can trace it back to is a handful and they keep merging to form these bigger conglomerations. So, um, the way we are going, uh, it is something that we need to be conscious about and understand that food sovereignty is not just a, you know, big word that greenies use, but it is something that will affect every single person who eats really, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow.
0: Big topics there. Um, for people who aren't, uh, enmeshed in the food industry, can you explain to us some of the biggest dangers in our current food system from things like, you know, why is it so bad to eat out of season or, you know, the transportation emissions that come along with shipping our food everywhere, or even like you said, the, um, the conglomeration of our food sources in the United States, we, I keep seeing more frequently listeria outbreaks and salmonella outbreaks that affect the entire food chain. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't realize this because there are only like three yeah. places in the US that this lettuce comes from. So you're in the food industry. Can you just enlighten us a little bit about some of those big dangers and why it is so harmful, not only to the planet, but to us as people?
1: Um, absolutely so if I have to um, I feel like statistics always helps to understand the scale of a problem so um, just to give you an idea um, 26% of the global greenhouse emissions comes from food or food production Um, half of the world's habitable land is used for agriculture and seventy percent of the global freshwater withdrawals are done to feed agricultural processes. So we are talking a huge impact. And the the what really you know this entire narrative about oh, we are a huge population, we don't have enough food to produce in the next few years is that wrong we are producing enough food to feed the current population and the estimated population. The problem is not production. The problem is social and economic inequality in distribution, as well as just wastage. Um, I, I have always been flabbergasted by American portions. Like, it's just it's crazy like why would you have a portion that size a it's unhealthy because you have you know as as human beings the ratio of what we should eat has changed over the years so if you look back in time and that's what the third plate the book talks about is our plates have changed Mm -hmm. so we went from meat being a uh, thing that people ate as a special treat to becoming a predominant part of our plate. That itself has huge impacts on the environment. Um, there's a huge debate about vegetarianism, veganism. You know, obviously eating less meat or no meat is really, really important for the environment because um, meat production is a huge impact on the environment, not only in terms of the methane that cattle actually produce, but also because most of this agricultural production that we were talking about um, goes to feeding animals and not humans. So we are producing enough food, but we are not producing enough food that is aimed towards human consumption. So looking at this you know, shift, cultural shift of of moving away from eating that much meat or moving away from eating that much food, which we are not really consuming, but wasting and goes into a bin or, you know, doesn't get consumed, is causing the problem that we have right now. Uh, Next is the conglomeration. So it happens in two stages. One is in the agriculture, so pre-agricultural, that is your seed. Um, right now, there are companies around the world that control all. So a company like Monsanto basically has patents on all seeds, that are, and some of them are indigenous varieties. So it is extremely um, dangerous because that means that no farmer can actually save seeds for the next year. And the seeds that they are designing, which are genetically modified, are annual seeds. Which means that you use it, and then the next year you don't have seeds to plant. This is this creates a huge economic barrier for smaller farms and smaller farmers to have um, a seasonal produce, to you know have financial stability, have seed sovereignty, uh, where they are not allowed to hold on to seeds for the next year, which is what we have done for thousands of years before, you know, these companies came into existence. And that is why around the world, there are a lot of small farmers who are fighting this and they're trying to create indigenous seed banks because just pure GMO seeds have you know, it's, it's a contested argument where a lot of people think it's good because we're producing more, but you have to also understand that when you try to control nature, it invariably has ill effects. So understanding that is very important and understanding the fact that humans cannot control nature is, stems back to that disconnect that we have um, with our environment. Um, the other thing that I really feel is very important in this entire conversation is understanding that um, there is diversity around the world and there's a diversity of local practices that we are, you know, not looking at. Um, what large-scale farming does is it you know, it's broad brushstrokes define how agriculture should be done throughout the world. But if you look at um, smaller communities, and again, I'll go back to the example of India, um, we have farming techniques that is specific to a land that a farmer is farming on. Um, And to grow produce on that land based on even, you know, even the lack of water or soil quality, they know what it takes to grow food in that condition. So when you take that knowledge or you disregard that knowledge, you're trying to implement a cooking technique on a land which will potentially fail. And that is why there is so much You know, there's so much crop failures around the world because we're not taking into account that there is diversity in land and there's diversity in terrain. And that has an impact on um, the food we're trying to grow. So as someone who is trying to work towards a sustainable food industry, I think how I see we can break through this is by supporting local farmers. Um, Buying local and moving away from that mass-produced agricultural system is our only way forward. Um, That also has a huge impact on emissions Mm because food gets transported across the world. So if you are buying a pack of rice that is produced in Vietnam, it's traveled around the world to reach you. Now, if... And again, depends on which part of the world you're in. Uh, It might actually be more sustainable to buy that land, uh, buy that rice if you're in Australia, because Vietnam is not that far, as well as Australia is a dry continent. So we can't produce rice because uh, it's a water intensive crop. So for us, it might be a good decision. But for a country that is producing their own rice and has enough water to do so, then it doesn't make sense. So there is no one way to do it, but the one sort of easy way to navigate this mind feel of, you know, what I should eat and where I should buy from is to support local. Cause you know where your money is going to, you know, that you're supporting a local farmer who's trying to grow his own produce. And, it will eventually create a connection for you as a person to your food and you will value it more. You'll waste it less. You will, you know, um, try to pass that on to your kids.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's just fantastic information. I appreciate you going through some of those top line issues that we are experiencing in our food system and the effect it has on everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this, your passion and your knowledge have come together for you to form your business consult earth and earth is spelled u-r-t-h so can you tell us about that and and give us a bit of a story behind the name as well i know there's an interesting story for that as well
1: yeah um so earth for me started as an amalgamation of my two passions which is food and sustainability and um I had just graduated from university and I knew I wanted to work as a consultant and somehow I could not find, uh, you know, an organization that was sort of working in the food space and really doing what I wanted to do. And I think that led to me realizing that if I want to do um, the work that I want to do in the food and hospitality industry, I need to do it myself. Um, And I spent a lot of time figuring out what I wanted Earth to be like and what I wanted, uh, you know, the company to embody. And it led to the formation of the name, which means meaning in Hindi, or it's derived from the Hindi word for meaning, which is Earth. Um, And it just made all the sense in the world because our what we say is consult with conscience. So we want to do meaningful work. We want to create uh, meaningful changes, and thus we think Earth just fit us perfectly. (laughs) Sound yeah. It sounds like it all
0: came together like a eureka moment. It was meant to be written in the stars. Uh. (laughs) Ah.
1: Took me three months, though. I'm not gonna yeah. lie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds can you give us like a, a process? Mm-hmm. <laughs> can you give us like a generic example of what uh, Earth does if a if a restaurateur or someone else in the food industry con- contacts you? What sort of uh, services do you provide and help them along their journey?
1: Absolutely. So, Earth. Um, uh, is uh, how we like to see it is a knowledge hub um, that connects hospitality with sustainability. Um, It's me and my business partner, Shuvan, who's also my brother. Great idea to work with your sibling. (laughs) But, um, I come from a food and sustainability background and Shubham comes from a finance background. So he's had over 15 years of experience working as an investment banker. Um, and he specializes in business planning and financial development. So, um, it, we it just worked out that we both sort of complemented each other's, um, experience and, our vision is to make sustainable hospitality businesses financially viable. I think something that we um, sometimes miss out to acknowledge is that we still exist within a capitalistic world. And if you really want to bring about um, big change and industry-wide change, you still need to make it financially viable. Um, And we want to bring that. Because economics is a big part of sustainability and you can't be environmentally and socially, um, you know, impact if you're not financially viable. So that is the main, um, if I had to describe it in a broad way, that is what Earth is. Uh, As far as our services go, um, we are... um, we specialize in different things, but uh, the way it is um, it's very business specific. Um, We eventually want to get to a point where we create frameworks that can be easily replicable uh, by anyone. um, And we're working on that, but for now it's based on the needs of a business. So we assess where they are on their sustainability journey and where they want to be and then provide services that help them to reach there. So um, it can be in terms of research, it can be in terms of business development, it can be in terms of financial thing, it can be in terms of um, actual operations like waste management and supply chain management and um, training and workshop for your team and employees to really make them understand uh, what sustainability means in their business because that's something coming from a fi- hospitality background that I really faced was that there, there's no conversation um, in school, in colleges, or in training programs about sustainability or waste management in the current system. So, training and workshops become a huge part of um, what the business needs to do right now if they want to become sustainable. We also um, look at the need for uh, you know, a change of consumption patterns. So we do work with communities um, and we want to create a space where, um, you know, businesses can reach their clientele and actually tell their story because stories are very powerful. So we do also offer um, marketing and, um, you know, PR and um, create that base for businesses to really promote what they are doing because that is really important for putting it out there and influencing other businesses to bring about change. Um, So our first project that we completed was um, this um, organic ethical cafe in Melbourne. It's called Pachamama's Whole Foods and Kitchen. So they were an organic grocery and we helped them open their first organic cafe and it is a beautiful community space where um, we implemented systems, we implemented, um, you know, proper um, staffing, like ethical staffing systems. So, um, yeah, so ethical staffing, uh, we considered what it means to have a healthy staff, Um, and put into place, um, you know, systems that helps and supports uh, people who work in your business. So, we also have the opportunity for people to upskill themselves within the business. So, there's no division between front of ours and back of ours. You sort of try to upskill your staff so that everyone can do everything. And um, we do that by having really, you know, really simplifying the entire process and having you know systems that are in place to help that happen as well as um one of my favorite things that we do is we work with the local uh community garden and um they uh so all the waste from the cafe gets composted at the community garden and the owners they're very proactive and they you know they spend their mondays doing it, going and working at the community garden and composting all of the waste from the restaurant. And um, as well as there's a um, program that supports people with needs or special needs to come and work in the cafe. So we are um, one of our uh, favorites who comes in and waters all our plants every week. Um, and, you know, we support Uh, So we work very closely with the wider community and support local businesses. And uh, the grocery store sells local products and uh, aiming toward sourcing more locally um, as well as organic. So, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful space. And, you know, the aim is to use that as an example of how an ethical Conscious uh business can be financially wise. So that is sort of first uh project that we've completed. Um here on we also want to focus on hotels because I feel that is a, a work of its own where you know one hotel has so much um waste that is created or impact that it creates that um lot that we can do there and uh, it's again not reinventing the wheel it's about redirecting your investments towards more long uh, goals and commitment to reducing your emissions and your impacts and look the two reasons I always give businesses is um, climate change is real so it's going to affect your supply chain if you want it or not so you'd rather Go in to the next ten years, being prepared to um, really, you know, um, deal with that impact, uh, as well as the fact that the consumer base is changing. Um, today, people care about what, how much emission they are causing when they are flying, and they want to offset it. They want to care about, you know, where they are buying their food from and who is it affecting, what clothes they are wearing, and if it's coming from. Um, a place of abuse and uh, effect on uh, vulnerable communities. So there is a constant change in consumer uh, base, and that's a huge uh, economic, uh, you know, factor to consider when you're planning your next ten years as a business. So it is the future of food, and it is the future of hospitality. Um, but change is slow, and we need it to be a lot faster. So. Uh, that's why things like things uh, like starting a conversation like you're trying to do is very important. Uh, and yeah, so the more we talk about it, the more we know where we are headed.
0: It sounds amazing. The, uh, I want to go to Pachamama's Cafe now. Unfortunately, I'd have to fly <laughs> a flight over. But it's—I uh, love the full circle effect, and I think um, you and I might vibe on something similar. You mentioned a few questions ago that you worked in media, and you know you had yeah. to replace this oil with olive oil because of the payment and that sort of stuff. And I work in media; I'm a digital marketer, and so I've certainly had those internal conflicts. For example, promoting a pest control company—that's something I wouldn't do yeah. now, but it's certainly something I did years ago, and. Um, I feel like we're riding a similar wave when it comes to consumer demand. I feel quite strongly that there is going to be more consumer demand as, you know, figures like Greta Thunberg and Joaquin Phoenix in the public eye are making these um, very strong and compelling cases for us to think, be more conscious with our consumption. And similar to you, I want to be able to promote those businesses that are doing it in the right way. So is it, what is it like in Australia? Is that wave quite strong right now? Is that really a, a driver of consumer behavior is to go down the sustainability and conscious consumption
1: side? So it is and it is not. Um, I live in a city Melbourne uh, and Melbourne itself is a very um, progressive city. So I sometimes feel like I'm in a bubble where people around me are very, very proactive and genuinely care about the impact they're having. But if you look at the bigger community uh, in Australia, the two primary industries in Australia is mining and agriculture. So um, it becomes a very difficult conversation because a lot of people's livelihoods depend on two very big you know industries that are the biggest emitters or the big, biggest uh, sort of impact in terms of environmental impact. So it is a very interesting space where there is a rise in demand for these um, services and products, but um, there's also that idea about, well, I would do it, but it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're still at that point where financial incentive is the way. If you can, the biggest example that actually Australia has done really well is solar. And a lot of people, a lot of conservative um, sort of demographic are moving towards solar because it's actually cheaper than going, being on the grid. So that has changed the conversation. And I think that is a great, great example about why it is important to make sustainable businesses financially viable because then you can give competitive prices. And economic um, stimul- stimulation in an industry that is trying to be sustainable is the most important thing to do right now. So um, if you are a conscious person, check where your investments are going, check which bank are you with, you know, who, who is investing or where are they investing their money? Like for me as a young person, I feel like those are the little choices that I make every day to make sure I have an impact, uh, because changing the whole system will take a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, we live in a very complicated, um world and we can't expect everyone to have the same motivation as we do so understanding other people's perspective become important as well if you are trying to um you know tell a community that is a community of cattle farmers that don't eat meat you're telling them that they can't send their kids to school or you know put food on their table so that's again, not the way to go, but it's about being conscious of the impacts and seeing how we can, you know, deal with the problem that's that big and intertwined. Great, great
0: answer. Um, are you optimistic about where the food industry is going? Are we going in the right direction or do we have some some big players that are fighting back?
1: Uh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I'm an optimistic person. I don't think I could do my job if I was not. Uh, But it's also a scary space to be. So as um, it's that that chicken and egg sort of conversation again, do you get consumers to change first or do you get, you know, producers or the industry to change first? Because – Um, one cannot exist without the other. But um, my view is that the change has to happen together. And as a business, you have to tackle both. As well as as a consumer, you have to also influence business. So, um, I mean, I still remember reading this case study which said, that right now the sales of free-range eggs is higher than any other eggs. And it happened because consumers started paying that extra 50 cents to a dollar to buy range eggs over cage eggs because they thought it was better. So it can happen, you know, like change can happen. But it's a process of putting all the right triggers together. And that's why it is important for us as consumers to make conscious choices. Because that is when industry is going to notice it and do something about it. If you look at most supermarkets now they are they have an organic aisle. It's because they realize that there is financial uh viability in that business so if you make it a business a purchase decision to buy you know stainup products, then bigger businesses will always want to invest in it because they're always looking to you know, tap into new markets. So it's that two-sided sword because at the end of the day, we do live in a capitalistic world where businesses that are that big that they can have big impact care about the bottom line. And there is a shift. Um, So someone like Unilever has been investing in research, and in looking at sustainable practices. But to me, the motivation behind that seems um, not because they want to save the world, but because they understand that climate change is real and that it's going to affect their supply chains and that they need to face that with the resources in place. So change is happening, but the way we can push it is by making... as individuals making choices that push businesses over that line and make them do better. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think you might have answered the last question that I have for you, which is what can we do as individuals when it comes to our food and our environment?
1: Um, Look, first and foremost, eat local. Get to know your local farmers at your local farmers market. Um, Go buy bread from, you know, the baker and, have a chat. They're always up for a chat. I think uh, create that community around your shopping. Um, it also makes you feel so much better than, you know, pulling a trolley down a, a soulless supermarket because you appreciate the egg that you bought from your egg guy because he's told you about his chickens and they're very passionate about their chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and. um give that to your kids. That's the best thing I can give them. Cook at home, uh, preserve your family recipes. If you have grandparents and uh, parents, and you know they were people who cooked you a hot meal when you were growing up, sit down with them, have a cup of tea and write down their recipes because that is going to create that tie that you and the future generations are going to have to food. We are losing heritage. We are losing culinary heritage. And that is why we are so disconnected. Um, There is nothing more important than nostalgia when it comes to, you know, the right thing, because it it is such a big driver. So don't underestimate how important it is to preserve nostalgia, uh, because that's put me where I am today. Uh, (laughs) It's pure nostalgia. So I'm a sappy uh, optimist who thinks that we can save the world if we care about the past. So um yeah wonderful that's great advice
0: and i think i'm gonna take i i'm gonna take this advice from you in regards to trying to shop more local because i absolutely hate grocery shopping and i think subconsciously deep down because (laughs) everyone in there is rushing and it's super impersonal and i don't know where that orange came from and so i think that's that might be what it is and i've just never realized it so (laughs) i'm gonna take that away for sure
1: Oh, that's amazing. Even if one person takes the change, it's, it's what's all about. And um, I just, I just love the idea of going to a market, you know, like, it's just so much soul and so many people who care so deeply. So let me know how you go. I'd love to hear your um, experience going back to a market (laughs) yeah
0: where I live unfortunately there's not a huge amount of markets but they are we do live in an agricultural state so they're trying to be better about it and we grow a lot of our own food as well so we might be at the market if we end up with 100 cucumbers (laughs) again
1: (laughs) that's amazing
0: well, Pooja, it's been <laughs> wonderful connecting with you across many time zones and a uh, and a huge expanse between us. But I feel, um, I feel we're vibing on some of the same stuff, and I really appreciate your take on the food industry and uh, bringing your past into into what's going to be our future. And I'm certainly going to be sharing a link to um, your business, Earth consultearth.com we'll put that in the notes thank you Uh, is there any way that you'd like uh, people to follow you on social media or
1: online yes so we are on Instagram as at consultearth and we're also on Facebook Um, give us a follow we love to talk to our community, so send us any questions you might have. Um, we are more than happy to answer. And um, no matter where you are in the world, if you're a sustainable business that needs a little help or are just a business who wants to become sustainable, um, send us a word. Send us a message and we'll get back to you. And, you know, uh, we want to work across the world. So um, no matter where you are, we are happy to work with you. So. Looking forward to hearing back from some of the people in the community. All right. Well,
0: thank you, Pooja. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day, and um, and thank we'll you. and we'll be following you from afar.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you, Fiona. That was such a good chat, and um, thank you for thinking about us and welcome to the Earthling family. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Hashtag Earthling. U R T H I N G <laughs> done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank, Thank you, you. Prisha. We'll be in touch.